Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So chapter 9, it's uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning, and it's about the first 10 verses. We're going to be looking at uh, the old tabernacle and how it is inferior under the old covenant compared to the new tabernacle, which is much more superior, and that's in verses 11 through 28. So that's kind of, it's not really an outline, but that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so I'm going to begin with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. When you read that divine services, what it is really speaking about is worship. That's what it really means is worship. The first covenant had ordinances, which are like regulations or uh, rituals or procedures that you went to. Uh, there was procedures and regulations and steps for worship is what it's talking about here in verse 1. In other words, the first covenant had procedures and steps and things that you went to in order to be able to approach God in his presence there in the, tank, in the, in the tabernacle. Because, you know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we look at all the, the laws and the sacrifices and all the things that people do. Well, why did they do it? They did it to enter into God's presence. That's why they did it. That, that was how God said, this is how you were to approach me. And so he gave them steps to do under the old covenant. And so, you know, I mentioned we're comparing the old tabernacle with the new tabernacle of the old covenant and the new covenant. But in reality, this is really focusing on worship, approaching God, coming into his presence. And we'll be comparing that between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so in verse 1, it says the first covenant had an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. You know what's interesting about this? We believe that Hebrews, the, the letter, of, uh, I didn't say Paul, but the, the, the person that wrote Hebrews, um, whoever he was, um, he wrote it while the temple was still standing Herod's temple, which was a fantastic, amazing building. So Herod's temple is first standing. He's not talking about Herod's temple, that great marvelous structure, as great as it was. He's not even talking about Solomon's temple, which was before Herod's temple, which was even more glorious than the temple that was standing as the, the Hebrews are reading this letter. He's going all the way back to the first tabernacle in the wilderness. And that thing was just a simple tent, basically. I mean, it was big, but it was a tent. It was, it was covered with badger skins. There was different layers of coverings that God said, this is what you're, and man, when we went through our study on, on the tabernacle and the coverings, man, there's so much symbolism pointing to Jesus Christ. But it was basically a tent. Why? Well, because they were mobile. They were traveling through the wilderness. You can't build a building there because then, you know, then you have to stay there. So they were traveling through. And so this was what, how God said, this is what you're going to do. And he gave them the instructions for this tent. And I mentioned it had different covers. Well, the last covering on this tent was made out of what they, what it says, badger skins, whatever, you know, it could be translated into some other thing. But whatever it was, it was very plain. In fact, if you were a, a Canaanite or whatever traveling through the wilderness, maybe an Egyptian, and you saw that, you would probably think it was just a Bedouin tent 
because it didn't look it didn't look like this spectacular place. What was glorious was, of course, what was inside. But this was where the Lord God met with the children of Israel. Very simple, no frills. And so the, the writer here is now going to go on to give the description of what was in the tabernacle. And he talks about the first place. And the first place or the first part was known as the, the holy place. Uh, and the, in this holy place, that's where the priests went in to minister. And the things that they did, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of things in there. In fact, there was only a few things, few articles of furniture in there. Uh, no chairs, by the way. Uh, no water fountains, no, no drinking fountains or coffee machines. There was just a few articles in there. And the very first thing he mentions is the lampstand. The lampstand uh, had six branches uh, with one in the center. Uh, you might think of a menorah, you know, that looked like that in some respects, obviously. Um, but hopefully, you know, if we've been going through Hebrews by now, hopefully you understand that, you know, the things that we're looking at, the Bible says they were copies and shadows of things in heaven. So there, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of significance. Um, the lampstand itself, if we were to just dig in and do a study on that, there's so many cool things we could learn from that. But one of the things that I think is significant that I, that I want to bring up this morning is the fact that it was the only light in this tabernacle. It had all these coverings on there, no windows, no, you know, no doors. It just had screens, which were heavy cloth coverings. And so it was dark, pitch dark in there. But the lampstand provided the light in the tabernacle. Again, everything points to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. You know, he, or light of life, excuse me, he is the light in the world. He alone provides illumination. People that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're walking in spiritual darkness. And a lot of people are just, they, they don't know what's going on. They don't have an understanding. And once a person comes to faith in Christ Jesus, man, things just fall into place. Life makes sense, finally, when you have a relationship with Christ. So, so Jesus is the light of the world. The next thing that's mentioned in there is the table. And the table was, it was basically a table. That's what it was. And that was what the showbread was put on, uh, placed on there. What was significant about the table? Um, one of the things that I think is the most significant, at least from what I, when I've done studies on the, this, is that it had a border all the way around the edges of it. It had a frame that was a hand breadth high. So a hand breadth, you know, I don't know, four or five inches, something like that, all the way around the edges of the table. Is that significant? John, uh, Jesus said this in John 10, verses 27 through 28. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's just a, I think it's a picture that, you know, the bread's not going to fall off. There's a border there to hold it onto the table. And I just think it points to the fact that Jesus Christ, he preserves you and I. Well, let's talk about the showbread itself that was on the table. There were 12 loaves of bread. Uh, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And what was significant about that is that those loaves stayed there perpetually. They were always there. Once a week on the Sabbath, uh, the, the, the high priest or the priest, excuse me, would go in there and they would change it out with fresh bread. 
and then they would eat, actually eat the other bread that had been there. Um, that, was their, that was their food that they would eat uh, along with the other sacrifices. But what is significant about that is that the bread was always there. And that is true for you and I. We are always uh, before his presence. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. I love this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, man, you're there. I didn't, he didn't say man. I'm saying man. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's my inflection. Uh, <laughs> Some, you know, it's funny. So there's a, a pastor. I love him. He's a great, great guy. And he says, dude, all the time. And uh, he's, he's, dude, man, do this. And, and he's reading scripture. He goes, dude, you know. And, and there's a, a friend of mine that started going to his church. And then his dad visited. And his dad says, man, that guy says, dude, all the time. He's like, does God say dude all the time? <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. That's a side thing. Let me read it again. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in, sh in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It doesn't matter where you go. Now, that's good news and bad news, right? I mean, the good news is, man, if you're in a difficult situation, you feel totally isolated, man, God is there. He's with you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. Now, the bad news is if you're not walking with the Lord and you're sinning and you're hoping the rapture doesn't happen today because, man, I'm not ready, you know, uh, God's there. You take him wherever you go. So good news and bad news. <laughs> but we'll focus on the good news this morning. Jeremiah 23, verse 23. God is saying this through Jeremiah. He says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? And that's the truth. The Lord is near. In fact, he is a prayer away from any one of us. He's, he's, he's right there. You know, sometimes you think, oh, I feel so distant from the Lord. And man, I don't know, where did he go? Well, he didn't go anywhere. You left him. And so all that you have to do is just pray and turn back. He's there. He's there. And so we are always in the Lord's presence. Well, continuing on here to verse uh, three, it says, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Now, so the tabernacle is divided into two places. You had the sanctuary or the, or the holy place. That's where the priests ministered in. And then there was a veil. And beyond that veil was called the holy place or the holy of holies. And so that's what separated those two portions was a veil. Um, the ancient Jews said that the veil of the temple, not the tabernacle, but later on the veil of the temple was as wide as four fingers. So it was woven. And uh, can you imagine the thickness and the, and the weight of, the, of like in Herod's temple, how tall it was, how many people would have had to hang it up? I mean, that thing was huge and heavy. Well, this, the holy place, the holy of holies, was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this veil. What is significant about that? Well, beyond that veil, was, and we'll get to talking about the mercy seat, that's where the presence of God would, that's where he would meet with the children of Israel. And so there was a barrier there. And the reality is that there is a barrier between sinful man and a holy God. And that's what that veil represented. The good news for you and I, though, is when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, the Bible tells us that that veil in the temple tore in two. 
that now man could enter into the presence of a holy God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you were one of the priests in the temple that day? And you know that, you know, only the high priest can go. Because if you, if you go in there and you, there's sin in your life, you know, you're dealing with sin or whatever, man, you're going to die in the presence of a holy God. You can't go into the presence of a holy God. And so they're in the sanctuary doing the, you know, changing out the showbread, making sure the candles are trimmed and all, all the things that they would do. And there's a little bit of a shaking, you know, earthquake. And all of a sudden, whoosh, probably didn't sound quite like that. But, you know, <laughs> there's this all of a sudden they're, they're there right in the presence of the holy God. Man, how that would have floored them. When we get to Hebrews 10, which we won't today, obviously. But in Hebrews 10, we're told that the veil is Christ's flesh. And we'll talk about that, of course, when we get to chapter 10. But what that I think is, what the writer I think is getting across, the point is, is that the only way to approach the Father is through Jesus Christ. And he's opened the way for us. Because you see, there are people that think, well, you know, I can, I can worship God and, and I don't have to worship God through Jesus Christ. Well, for anybody, anybody else, there's still a barrier there. There's still a barrier there. It's only through a relationship with Christ that that barrier is removed and we can enter into the presence of the Father. So what's inside the Holy of Holies? Look at verse 4. Um, says, which had the, in the speaking of the Holy of Holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So the golden censer. Um, so, and some of the people say, well, wait a minute, is that talking about the altar of incense or just literally the censer? Well, the altar of incense was actually on the other side of the veil. It was inside the holy place, not in the holy of holies. But Aaron, the high priest, on the day of atonement, would take a censer. He would take coals off of the altar of incense along with incense and that's what he would bring into uh, the Holy of Holies only on the Day of Atonement. And the significance of, of, the, of the censer and the incense in the Bible, you read, you read it uh, in Revelation, you read it in different places, it's, it's a picture of prayer. Because prayer takes place when we enter into the presence of the Lord and we're praying. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, it was basically a box covered with gold. It had a cover on it. And inside of it, it contained the golden pot of manna. What's significant about the manna? It was a reminder to the children of Israel of God's provision for them in the wilderness. It was their daily sustenance. That's their, that was their bread, the manna. And of course, it's a copy and a shadow. And Jesus said... I am the bread of life. In fact, in Matthew 4, 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So if you think about the manna, God faithfully provided it for 40 years for, I don't know, two, three million Israelites traveling through the wilderness, faithfully. It was always there. They always had enough of it. It sustained them. You know, they, I mean, here they're marching, not marching, but they're walking for 40 years. And that manna was nutritional. It kept them healthy. It sustained them. It was enough to, to, for them to, to go through the wilderness in their wandering. It was nutritious for them. The Bible even says it was sweet to the taste. 
Well, both Jesus and his word are sweet to the taste. It's been my prayer. The Lord's been doing a work on my heart, and I've been praying for our whole fellowship that we would just fall in love with reading God's word. And, and you know, just to the point where it's not like, oh, you know, I, it's, I have to read. I, I need to spend some time reading because, you know, that's what Christians do. We have to read our Bible. And, you know, people are always asking, hey, are you reading the Bible? Or, or they'll say, hey, what's the Lord showing you? So, man, i got to read, you know, because that's not it at all. I want all of us, myself included, to get that point where I go, Lord, man, I need that daily provision. I need that food. I need your strength. I need those nutrients. Lord, please speak to me. And his, his word is so precious. And as you dig into his word, man, it just points you to Jesus Christ. It just points you to the Lord. And his, his presence in our hearts and our lives is sweet. Because that's what Christianity is. It's a relationship. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a relationship. That's what we're talking about. So the manna, there was a pot in the, of, of manna in this Ark of the Covenant to remind them of God's faithfulness in providing the bread through, the, um, through their wilderness watering, wandering. Excuse me. There was also Aaron's rod that budded. And we, you know, we could go back and look at that story. We won't for sake of time. But what's significant about that? Well, it was a dry, dead stick of wood that, that Aaron used as a rod. And yet... As it was placed, and like we, again, I, we get into the story, but it became, uh, it, it, it ended up blossoming and having fruit on it. And it was, it's a picture of the resurrection from death to life, the transformation. What else was in there? Well, the tablets of the covenant. The significance of the law is the requirements. You know, it, Whatever you think about the Ten Commandments and the law, the, the, the point for you and I as New Testament Christians is the fact that we can't keep the law. And, and the Lord is, God was using the Ten Commandments to point the children of Israel to the realization that they needed a Savior, that there was no way that they could keep the law, keep the Ten Commandments. And so it's a, it's a, for you and I, again, it's a copy and a shadow. We realize that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law for you and I. Praise God for that. Verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of things we cannot now speak in detail. The mercy seat, it was basically a cover over the ark. There the blood of the covenant would be sprinkled on the day of atonement. And the significance is that that's where God would meet with the children of Israel. And so on this cover, on this mercy seat, there were cherubim. And it says that they, uh, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so basically there was these two angels that were facing one another. I don't know if they look just like what I'm showing in the picture, but you get the idea. Maybe you've seen, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if it looked like that or not, but you get the idea. Anyways, two angels there worshiping or, 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 or in prostrate uh, right into the center there. You know, it's very fascinating. I, I, I've been going through the Old Testament reading in my own time, and, and I finished Ezekiel not too long ago. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a prophecy about the king of Tyre. And it actually, when you start reading it, you go, man, this looks like it's, it's obviously speaking about the, the king of Tyre, but there's something behind it. And, and what it is, it's speaking about Lucifer, Satan, the devil. And it's speaking about him. And in Ezekiel 28, verse 14, and it's, to me, it just fascinates me. 
speaking about what he was before he rebelled, before he fell, before he sinned, it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I'm not saying anything, but I'm just wondering. I wonder if he was one of the cherubim there that's being depicted on the Ark of the I don't know. I'm not sure. But what is interesting and what is fascinating was at Christ's resurrection, which we'll be celebrating next week. John 20, verse 11 through 12. This is speaking about Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. What a picture of the mercy seat. Christ's blood, of course, being sprinkled on the cross, and there... His resurrection opened the way for you and I to enter into the presence of God. And so here's holy God meeting with mankind. What a beautiful picture, the resurrection there. What's significant about the cherubim? Well, you know, you read the book of Revelation and you read different passages in Scripture. The angels, the four living creatures, they're all around the throne and they're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping God. And so the significance is that they're worshiping his majesty because he's worthy of praise, glory, and honor. Now look at verse 6. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the, holy, uh, excuse me, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. You look at verse 6 there. The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services or accomplishing uh, the worship of God. What, what, what did they do? Well, they were always offering sacrifices. So many sacrifices were to be offered throughout the calendar year and daily. There's all these sacrifices. They were busy, busy sacrificing animals, taking the blood and bringing it in. Um, they were always uh, burning the incense, making sure the altar of incense was, was going and there was incense on the altar. They were always trimming the, the, the golden lampstand, uh, making sure those lights were kept going. Uh, once a week, they were changing out the showbread. Uh, and so, you know, they were daily in there working. They were never resting. Like I said, mentioned before, there's no coffee machine. There's no, you know, like, like priest's break room or anything like that. You know, it was just, they were in there laboring, working. But it was only once a year, and not even any priest, but only the high priest would be able to enter the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. Only one person, only once a year. Yet they were doing all this work, all these things. But only one person once a year could enter into the presence of God. Well, under the new covenant, we don't go through a bunch of rituals to enter the presence of God to worship him. We don't have to. And yet for some people, 
They think, you know, I, I, if I get these icons and you know, light all these candles and make the room dark and, you know, I, I do all these things, then I, then I create this mood. And, and it feels like I'm entering into the presence of God. It feels like it. Well, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that as New Testament cre- uh, Christians. We are creatures. I'm going to say New Testament creatures, but we are a new creation in Christ. Um, we don't have to feel the presence of the Lord. We don't, we don't need to create this feel that like God's there. We don't have to create an atmosphere. You can enter into, as a New Testament believer, you can enter into the presence of God anywhere, anytime, any place. You could be at work and you could start praying and worshiping the Lord. Man, you boom, you're right there into the presence of God. You'd be in, in rush hour traffic. You know, what a, what a better thing to do to be worshiping God than to be cussing out the guy that just cut you off. You know, I mean, that's, it's, I mean, you can do that anywhere, anytime, any place. Now, I want to mention something. In chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage the believers, the Hebrew believers, the importance of gathering together corporately. Because, you, you know, people say, well, hey, I don't need to go to church, man. I can worship God out on the golf course, you know, in the ninth hole. You know, yeah, you can. Obviously, you can. But there's importance for you and I to meet together corporately because you're not going to grow spiritually if you're not in fellowship with other people. You're not going to grow. I mean, you might think, oh, I'm really drawing close to the Lord. You're not, honestly. We need each other to stimulate, to spur one another on. We have gifts that each one of us has been given, and we're, to, and we're supposed to be employing our gifts for the benefit of the church. And so gathering is important. But you can worship the Lord God anywhere. That's absolutely true. Anywhere, anytime, any place. But here's the point. You couldn't do that under the old covenant. You couldn't. Entering God's presence was inaccessible to the average Hebrew person. What they did was they would bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle. We're speaking of the tabernacle, later on it would be the temple. They would bring, the, you know, they have their sacrifice, their lamb or whatever it was that they were offering to the Lord. They'd bring it to this tabernacle. They would lay their hands on it to, to confess their sins. And then they would give it to the priest and then the priest took it from there. That was it. And the priest would sacrifice it. The priest would take it in. The priest would, would, would take the blood and stuff. The new covenant, again, the, the veil is torn. You don't have to go through any preacher or priest or anything like that. You can enter the presence of the Lord yourself. You can approach the throne of glory. The tabernacle was temporary. Verse 8 says, The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So it's temporary. It was also symbolic. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time. But the most important thing about the tabernacle, speaking under the Old Covenant, it was ineffective to change the heart of the worshiper. I mean, you'd bring your, your animal to the priest, you know, you, you would be forgiven in a sense. You'd be, you'd be pronounced forgiven, but you still had the guilt of your sin. And the reason, you know, sin was never removed. It was just covered over. And the reminder was that every time you sin, I've got to bring another sacrifice to the tabernacle. I, I, you know, year in and year out, day in and day out. You probably wanted to raise a if, if I was, I'd be a sheep. I mean, I have multitudes of sheep, you know, I have like thousands of sheep because I needed them, you know. <laughs> but you never entered God's presence as a Jewish person yourself. 
you never did enter into his presence. Only the high priest would go in and only once a year. So you'd be forgiven, but you wouldn't have been changed. The guilt would have still been there and you would have left unchanged. Verse 11, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the holy, most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know what jumps out to me? There's no description of the new tabernacle. Well, you know, there was these, these things and this. You know, there's no description of the new tabernacle. Now, if you read the book of Ezekiel, like I did not too long ago, Ezekiel has some visions of God on the throne, and there's some, some physical descriptions about what it looked like to Ezekiel. Daniel had uh, visions of, of God. Isaiah had visions of God on the throne. Uh, the apostle John was taken uh, up into heaven to see the heaven, you know, to see Jesus Christ on the throne. And so there are places where we we can read about what it, what it looked like to these people. But the focus here, there's no description of the structure of the articles of the furniture. Why? Because the focus is on the high priest, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, and his perfect sacrifice for sin. The focus is all on him. All those other things, they pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, some believe that Jesus Christ entered heaven with his literal blood. Uh, it says there, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Um, I don't have an argument with that. I'm, I'm not like, that's what I believe. But I mean, I don't disagree. I don't know. But I mean, you read it, it sounds like that could very well be the case. But here's the point. He entered the most holy place once and for all. He's there even today. He's there in the presence of the Father for you and I in heaven. He's there and he hasn't come out. And the only time he's going to come out is when he comes to return for his bride, the church, to take us back to be with him there. Right now, that's where he's at. Now, under the old covenant, the high priests on earth, they went into the holy place, right? Once a year, whoever was the high priest, but I guarantee they didn't linger. It's like, you know, I'm in the presence of a holy God. They basically went in, did what they had to do, what the law required. They came out. I mean, they didn't hang out in there. In fact, tradition, and I, again, this is tradition. I don't know if it's a fact, but tradition was that the high priest would have a rope or a chain tied around, I think a rope tied around his ankle. And so when he went into the, law, into the holy place, if he was in there too long, or, you know, he had bells on, the, on his, the robes of his garment, if they stopped hearing the ringing, like it's been like eight hours, man. <laughs> I don't hear any ringing. They thought, man, I wonder if he died. Maybe, maybe you know, he didn't quite cleanse himself ceremonially, right? He's dead. And so they could, nobody else could go in there, so they drag him out. I, again, that's tradition. I don't know if that's true or not. But that was under the old covenant. They didn't want to hang out in there. Or they probably wanted to, but they couldn't, they, just because of that, the, the sense of God's holiness. But our great high priest... He's there in the holy presence of God the Father Almighty right now at this very moment. In verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, serving the living, to serve the living God? 
Now, we could talk about the blood of bulls and goats and the significance, but I don't think there's any need to explain. We've been, we've been going through that if you've been here for any length of time. But the ashes of the heifer, that's, that's something that's a little bit, you know, we don't talk about that all the time. The ashes of the heifer, what are we talking about? Well, it was a red heifer that they would sacrifice. They would burn the red, the red heifer and they would take its, its ashes and they would use it for ceremonially purifying uh, people and articles. Why was it red? Well, because of sin, basically. It represents sin. I, it's sin, excuse me. Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so what the priest would do is he would take a little bit of the ashes and add it into some water, and that would be, it would be mixed with the water. And then if someone, ceremony, they, you know, they wanted to offer sacrifices, but maybe they touched a dead person, or in some way they became ceremonially impure, impure unclean, uh, they would get that sprinkled on them, the ashes mixed with the water. Um, it was also used for cleansing the tabernacle and articles of the temple for service. So what's fascinating about that is that uh, the Jewish people, some of the, the Jewish scholars, believe that there were nine heifers, nine red heifers that have been used throughout history from the time that Moses was instructed to take the first heifer and sacrifice it until now, or until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There had only been nine heifers. You think about it, you don't need a whole lot of ash from a huge bull. So there's, they're waiting for the 10th heifer. They're looking for, in fact, there's a search going on for the 10th heifer. There's an institute in Israel called the Temple Institute, and that's what they're all about, man. They're all about getting pre prepared for the third temple because, you know, for 2,000 years, they have not been offering sacrifices. And so they, they want to get to the point where they can start uh, offering sacrifices once more. Well, it's interesting. So there's an article in the Temple Institute, and you can go to their website and read this, but it says this. It says, uh, talking about that 10th heifer, remember I said there was nine up until the destruction of the temple? It says, in recounting this historical record in his commentary to the Mishnah, the great Maimonides, I guess that's how you pronounce it, ends with the enigmatic statement, and the 10th red heifer will be accomplished by the king, the Messiah. May he be revealed speedily. Amen. May it be God's will. With this amazing statement, Maimonides recounts an ancient tradition that the 10th red heifer is associated with the Messianic error. Era, not error. Uh, does this perhaps mean that the appearance of a red heifer in these waning end times is an indication, a forerunner of the appearance of the Messiah himself who will officiate at its preparation? Do you, do you get what they're saying? They're saying we need that 10th tenth, that tenth red heifer, and they're saying oh, maybe it's the Messiah. or they, They're actually believing it's the Messiah who's going to prepare this 10th red heifer. Man, they are ripe for spiritual deception. They are ripe for deception when the Antichrist comes on the scene and works out a covenant. I was talking to my son, and I asked him to email me the article. He, I got to get on his case. He didn't. He said, I will, but he didn't. You know how kids are. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Anyways, he told me that there's some very prominent Islamic people, and I, I can't name them because I didn't read the article, but he said there's some very prominent is, uh, Islamic people that are telling Muslims that they don't, the focus on the, the Alaska mosque in, you know, on the Temple Mount, it's not that important. 
they should be focusing more on Mecca and uh, the other place. I forgot the other, the other name of the other place. That they don't have to focus so much. And, and you think about the Abraham Accords that are taking place. Uh, the, 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 the negotiations that are going on with these different Arab nations. I think we are very close, very close to a time when the Jerusalem, when Israel will be able to build that third temple. Man, that's exciting. Because when that takes place, I think we are already out of here. We're already, Christ has already left the tabernacle and come for his bride. I mean, I, I'm so excited about that. I'm not excited about them being deceived and, and, you know, sacrificing blood sacrifices that are no longer necessary because of Jesus Christ. But I'm excited because when you see that, man, you know Christ's return for his church is that much closer. So for me, it's exciting. So the writer here says, if the blood of bulls and goats ashes of the heifer sanctifying for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, serving, to serve the living God? You think about it. Animals are amoral, right? They don't have a sense of right or wrong. Christ Jesus was born a man. Men have morals. They have a sense of right or wrong, and yet he did not sin. He is so much superior to an animal in that sense. Bulls and goats and heifers, they didn't come to the temple and say, sacrifice me. You know, they, they didn't offer themselves willingly, but Jesus Christ did. For his love for you and I, he went to the cross and suffered and died for us. He willingly offered himself. In every respect, Christ's sacrifice is superior to animals. And the animals, the sacrifice of animals, the writer is saying here, it ceremonially purified the flesh. It did something on the outside of the person. But his sacrifice cleanses the conscience, cleanses our conscience from dead works. What is dead works? Well, Two things it could be, of two things they are, I should say, works of death or works of sin that lead to death. They could also be works of the flesh and not of the spirit because they're dead. If, they're, if, we're, if we're doing works out of our own flesh and not through the, through the spirit, it's dead works. It's not accomplishing anything of eternal value. So we, we're, 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 we are, uh, our sacrifice cleanses us, cleanses us, excuse me, uh, from dead works, our conscience, to serve the living God. You know, it's interesting. So I asked if, you know, I'm just encouraging people about children's ministry. You know, we have a, there's an opportunity to serve here in the church. And uh, praise the Lord, some people come up and say, you know, I'd like to serve in some way. Matt, you, you bless me when you, when you say that. I, I love that. Um, but, you know, that's the other aspect of this, worship and serving. You know, Jesus said to Satan, remember Satan tempted, uh, Lucifer tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And one of the things he said is, man, if you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And what did Jesus said? Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Very interesting. Serving follows worship. That's one of the points I think I wanted to bring out this morning. Genuine worship leads to serving God. See, people, they want to serve God willingly from a heart of thankfulness and love. It's not like I'm not doing anything to earn anything. Man, I love the Lord, and I just want to minister. I want to serve. I want to, I want to be used by the Lord. You know, if you're entering into God's presence, man, you can't leave changed, or unchanged, I should say. You have to leave changed. 
If a person, you know, if, they're, if they are unchanged in their life, they come to faith in Christ Jesus and there's no change in their life, you have to wonder, man, did they ever really enter into the holy presence of God? Because you can't not be changed by being in his presence. I'll give you an example. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. He's one of the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, in chapter 5, he's pronouncing woe, woe on this, woe on that, woe, woe, woe. You know, he's just, he's pronouncing all these judgments on all these nations around him. But in chapter 6, he has a vision where he is entering into the presence of God. He's entering into the holy place in heaven. And what does he say? Man, woe is me. There's no longer folks that, man, woe is me. For I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean clean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it goes on to say, Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a coal, which he had taken from the tong with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Man, that cleansing. But what happens next? It says next, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You see, serving follows worship. Verse 15, we'll continue on here. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be of necessity by the death of a test, excuse me, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Oops got behind myself here a little. You know, when somebody makes a will out and they say, I want to give, you know, I want to give this to my daughter, I want to give this to my you know, nephew and all that stuff, um, it's great, but it doesn't have any power until that person dies. And then once that person dies, then that testament comes into, for into force. It's only until the person who wrote the will dies when it becomes into force. Well, the new covenant, which is the New Testament, it did not come into force until Christ Jesus died. Death was necessary to ratify the covenant, to ratify the new covenant. And, as the writer is going to show here in verse 18, death was also necessary to ratify the old covenant. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the, all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. That word means forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood. Why is death so prominent in the Old Testament? Why is it brought up so much? Why is there so much blood being shed? You know, it's, it's, you read there's just sacrifices and blood and death. And why is it so much? Well, because of this. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches. There has to be the shedding of blood in order to obtain forgiveness. Listen, I want you to understand something. 
the life of Christ doesn't save you. I mean, you can follow Christ's teachings. You know, he's all these parables and all these teachings. Go, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow all these things that Christ said. You can follow Christ's teachings. You can even pattern your life after Jesus as he lived as a man on earth. I'm going to do just like Jesus did. I'm going I'm to be just like him. I, I, you know, I'm going to follow his teachings and stuff. That won't save you. The only thing that will save you is his death and his blood shed for you. That's the only thing that will save us. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these. And he's speaking about the blood of calves and goats, water, scarlet, scarlet wool, and hyssop. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have had to suffer once since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, there are those that believe that Christ Jesus is suffering perpetually on the cross. Every time the Mass is celebrated, you know, he's on the cross there, suffering once more. That is not scriptural. Christ Jesus suffered once and for all at Calvary. Verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Such an important principle here. It is appointed for men to die once. There is no reincarnation. You don't, you know, get a, a run at this life and then that's okay, I'll come back as a caterpillar next, next life or whatever. There is no reincarnation. Life is not like a video game. <laughs> I love, you know, I love video games. I, I don't, I'm not very good at it. I've got one son or one grandson that just really into video games and he likes Opa, which is my name, to play with him. And, you know, and I'll, I'll be, I'll do it. I don't know the button, so I'll do it as fast as I can. And I, you know, the guy's doing all this stuff, you know, he's, and, and, and he's like, whoa, you're really good, Opa. And then, but then I end up dying, right? And I, end up, and I didn't have any lives build up. So he's like, then he comforts me. It happens every time. You did pretty good, Opa. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Life is not like a video game. You don't get more lives. You don't, you don't like hit some bricks, you know, jump up and hit a brick and you get another life. You know, there's, there is no life. It shows how much I know about the video games, right? Life is not like a video game. It is appointed for men to die once. But after this, the judgment. Again, another important principle. There is no purgatory. There's nobody, uh, you can't be prayed out of purgatory. There is no purgatory. There's no universalism. What do I mean by universalism? It's universalism. It's the doctrine that all sinful and alienated human souls, because of divine love and mercy, will ultimately be reconciled to God. So there's people that say, well, you know what? God is love. He's infinitely God, love. And, and heaven, the lake of fire, it's just, it's just temporary. In the end, everybody gets saved. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. Just as the old soap opera, old soap opera was titled, man, we only have one life to live. <laughs> that is so true. Now, one thing I want to bring up to you is... Uh, Oh, I'm behind here again. <laughs> we get to follow a little bit after. There we go. The three appearances of Jesus Christ in the end of this chapter. 
Verse 26, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Man, it is done. It's finished. Praise God. He has appeared to put away the sacrifice of sin by himself or for of himself. Verse 24, Christ has now appeared in the, pres in the presence of God for us. That's what we've been talking about. He is now in the heavenly tabernacle. He's now up in the presence of the Father there for you and I. In verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Man, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he's returning for you. So I want to just close with a few points. And again, my focus was on worship this morning. Real worship does not require a bunch of steps to take or procedures to perform to enter into the presence of God. You don't have to create an atmosphere. You don't have to go through, jump all through all these hoops, man. Under the new covenant, Christ has made it so that you can just enter into God's presence anywhere, anytime. Real worship doesn't need the right atmosphere or visual sensory helps. You know, we, don't, we don't have to darken the sanctuary, get a fog, you know, get some smoke machine running. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that those are sinful, but I mean, we don't have to do that to enter God's presence. Real worship doesn't, uh, excuse me, real worship draws us into the very presence of Christ where we can adore him and glorify him. That, when you enter into worship, you're, you're coming before the throne, man, it's Jesus Christ. That's what we're focusing on. That's who we're worshiping. And then finally, real worship will lead to serving him. You can't enter into the presence of the, of the Lord without being changed. It has, a, it has an effect on us. I'll have the worship team come on up. And if you folks could stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll just go right into worship this morning. We're just going to close with one more worship song. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this chapter. Lord, uh, I thank you that we're not under the old covenant. Lord, that we don't have to do all that work that the priests had to do. Lord Jesus, you fulfilled all of that when you lived and died and rose again, and now you're in heaven right now interceding for us, mediating on our behalf. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence in heaven for us. And Lord, we are eagerly waiting for you to return for us. And Lord, I pray that in the meantime, Lord, that you would use our lives. Lord, that we would be believers who have been impacted by your presence and changed. And that Lord, we wanna, we wanna be minister in whatever way that you would have us to do, Lord. I pray that you would lay that on each one of our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for what you've done for us. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's close with this last song. Let's focus on Jesus.